Welcome to Pinnacle. Brought to you by Reach Outcomes. We are rehabilitation and performance experts based in Austin, Texas. We'll be bringing you knowledge and actionable steps from all disciplines of human performance to take you to the next level. Level. Welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast. I'm, of course, Jared Aguilar. We're joined by Alexis and Danny. And we have the immense pleasure of Scott Sonnen joining us as well. Scott, did I say that last name correctly? I don't even say it correctly. It's okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, I won't be able to, to do your introduction justice, Scott. I'm going to let you take that job yourself. So please feel free to, to educate us on your journey. Um, okay. Well, my name is Scott Sonnen. I'm, uh, I currently work as a respiratory scientist. I concentrate on respiratory psychophysiology and breathing behavioral analysis. Uh, that, that sounds like a mouthful, uh, but basically I, I, I now, if you get to the end of any, any serious discipline, you have, to go, you have to dive deep, you can't go wider. And that, that was a tough choice. I, I wanted to go broader, but in order to do any discipline justice uh, eventually you're you're going to have to stay in a place and go as deep as you can in order to bring back some some rigor into what you're doing uh, because i was fairly good at my what it, what i did um, but only because of some great teachers and uh, there was quite a bit of barnacle on that ship as i sailed through that journey so i had to do a lot of uh, scraping uh, and that that for me that was breath centric um, uh, on top of being a, uh, an obese and a pre-diabetic kid, uh, which alters your, your, your breathing, respiratory exchange ratio, I, I also, which you're going to find through the course of this presentation, uh, had pretty severe learning disabilities, in particular dyslexia. Uh, for those that don't know, it's, it just is a bucket, which means this difficulty with language. So for normal kids, uh, cognitive load, which is what psychologists call challenge, uh, with regards to language was cognitive stress for me. So that's a different breathing behavior, load versus stress. And coupled with an actual traumatic childhood, uh, my baseline stress level from my physical and mental life shifted, it nudged me into anxiety. Anxiety is a different breathing pattern again. So my speech was ad adversely affected, uh, which is a, as everybody knows, it's a deliberate manipulation of airflow through vocal folds um, and tongue musculature. But with those exaggerated baselines uh, from, from my learning disabilities to my metabolism, uh, most exercise was prohibitive for me because of the breath challenges it, it presents. That just looked like, it just looked like quick fatigue. It, we didn't understand it as premature fatigue. We didn't understand that it was breath related. So uh, due to the early exposure to childhood violence that I had, my mother got me involved with martial art pretty early on, she, she was my first instructor uh, and still, and always was the most feared person in my life. <laughs> um, she, uh, the martial art that she got me involved with was, uh, was very breathing centric. I watched her practicing her kata out in the pasture and I snuck out to, to try and emulate her movement and her breathing. Uh, but it, it, was, it was highly effective in, in giving me access to physical exercise since breathing was, was central to that martial art, I suddenly found myself being able to do physical things that I hadn't prior. 
Uh, and in, in addition to that, she found alternative uh, educational modalities that provided uh, insights onto breathing for anxiety management. The problem was um, sometimes a breathing technique would work in one, one instance, let's say public speaking, and not work in another instance, uh, physical exercise. Or sometimes a breathing technique would work in one type of physical exercise one day, and then in the same workout the next week, it would not work. So when you're young and when the field is new, you assume it's you. You assume, well, I must not be doing it correctly. So please understand, like when I'm when I'm talking, I, I'm I'm also talking at the the current end of my journey. I hope it's not the end of my journey. I want I want another half of my life to 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 figure this out the best I can. Um, but I, I'm I'm now at conclusions that I didn't have then. It was all self doubt then, of wondering, you know, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me? Why why can I not do these things? Uh, so I sought out to look more deeply and and became and breathing became the focus of my my life's work. One of the, one of the primary focuses of of my life's work. I, I will say that 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 sounds clear now. It did not. Um, martial art became the focus of my career because I wanted to stop getting beat up all the time. Right? That was that was my primary interest. Like no more pain. Uh, uh, inadvertently in that self-exploration to figure out why my brain worked the way it did or didn't work the way it should. Uh, I ended up becoming a gold medalist for the U.S. team in five forms of martial art and wrestling. I was the first uh, American to formally intern behind the uh, former Soviet Union in their form of stress physiology with their cosmonauts, special operators, and Olympic teams. Um, I gained a their highest distinction in their national sport of wrestling called a master of sport. And I earned a, an equivalency of a master's in their, in their form of their, their early form of psychophysiology and then came back to the States and earned a, a master's of science in applied breathing sciences. Uh, again, to deepen my understanding in this, this, it's still relatively new, 30 years is relatively new, respiratory psychophysiology, the, how does, how does breathing, it, interplay with the mind and the body. Uh, and I've had, with it, without going into it, because like like mutual friends we have, uh, I've, I've been some places and I've done some things with people that are uh, a lot better than me. Um, I have had the honor of uniquely working with uh, elite institutions and units and military special operations in the intelligence community and federal law enforcement. And, and now more, more recently, in the scientific and medical communities. Uh, I've moved on from being a coach of the US team to adding pure science. Now I'm a researcher because I found that, especially in light of being married, it's better to ask questions than answer them. <laughs> it's, it, I, I'm conservative in, in how I answer questions because I know the individual stereotypy that's involved in, in recommendations. So with that, the rest of my career is going to con involve continually exploring the whole human experience through, through respiration, how breathing changes affected me uh, in cognition, emotional stress, speech, anxiety, and premature fatigue. And hopefully, you know, despite all the, the, the awesome elite communities I work in um, and the pure research that I do, which I geek out, I geek out on and can't can't have a normal conversation with my wife sometimes. Uh, 
I, my, my ultimate goal is, is to bring what I've learned in, in advances to alternative education back to children and institutions with uh, learning disabilities. Longer than you wanted. That's perfect. And there's so much to go just, just from there. That is absolutely amazing. I love that you speak to um, breathing in all aspects, like relating to human life. Like that is incredible. I don't think, um, I don't think I've had like the privilege of speaking to a breathing expert, um, you know, with that perspective. So I, I feel like that's extremely powerful. And again, just aligned with the methodology of reach and how we want to be a holistic team and um, really like treat the whole athlete is, is really our purpose statement. So that's amazing. That's awesome. um, I um, just, I guess, and you kind of have answered this, but if, if you think back to the incredible career you've had right now, just maybe two or three like key experiences um, in your career that have kind of shaped you or put you on the path that you've taken. Cause it's not, I mean, it's not the normal breathing path. I wasn't prepared for that. I, I, I tried to prepare as best I could because uh, the, the thing about dyslexia is that it's when you're speaking with that person, it seems like a duck that's calm on the water, but there's feverish paddling underneath before that event happens uh, of background research and citing sources and having five documents open on, on two screens just in case something's asked because I'm a tip of the finger, not a tip of the tongue guy. Um, so and, uh, again, I'm, my office looks like I'm a hoarder with, with, all, with all of my resource, resources. So, and please, if that's, if that's too off the cuff, Scott, I'm, we don't need no, to answer that. That's just fine. like my response to hearing you talk. So uh, from, the, from my sports career as a former pro athlete, um, I wanted the perfect fight. And for me, the perfect fight wasn't uh, what, what it's romanticized about in, in with, with certain crowds. For me, it was, can I remain calm with a, a, a smirk, not a sarcastic one, just a, an, an enjoyment of what I'm doing in the middle of some an event surrounded by lights and din and people and whistles uh, and remain sangfroid, like keep my composure, keep my, my heart rate, my blood pressure, my breath rate down, while this person intends to visit violence upon my body. Uh, and I had that once, I had that once. And it, it was, I, I fortunately, my, my wife and I met together on the US team. So you know, 17 years later, when I finally had that event, she was there with me and, and she, she got to reflect that uh, that event, she knew that was my struggle. And if it weren't for her, it wouldn't have happened uh, because I, I, I was uh, 40 years old at the time and it was open age, open weight class uh, uh, from 22 different countries. And World Games, I, I, I won the first match and I knew, I knew it was a lot harder than I had thought. Like it, it was a Pyrrhic victory. I knew it cost me a lot more of my calories than, than, I, than it should have and it was, uh, anxiety related uh, because it was live television and it was only my career right the, and it was the my swan song so it was the end the the next fight 
I lost and that shouldn't happen. Like I was, I was the best at what I, what I did. And I was, I, I was a really, I was a really good fighter in my day. Um, and then something, a quicksand happened and I, I started to spin down and old, old triggers started to come up. The thousands of people, the lights, my wife watching the TV, my career ending, my career uh, ending on a bad note. Um, like all of that, I started to mentally uh, practice. Like you get better at negativity. Um, and I lost the next fight. And then it was bad because now I had to climb back nine fights in order to have a chance to win and, and work my way around. My wife pulled me aside and she pulled me behind the curtain. Well, actually, I, I remember specifically she walked down the bleachers and clop, 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 clop. I heard her coming. I heard just her shoes over the thousands of people there at Mandalay Bay. Um, and she walked up and she leaned over and there's this great picture of her. She's leaning over smiling and she says, what are you doing? And I, I'm slumped into my chair and you can see me deflated. It's an interesting choice of words. Uh, and I, I, I kind of side-eyed her and I, I said, I'm, babe, I'm losing. And she, she shook her head and she goes, uh-uh, still smiling. Like everybody else sees this, this beautiful woman, just a tender uh, moment leaning over tight. She goes, uh-uh, we didn't do this for 10 months, eight hours a day for you to come here and mentally give up. You get up, you walk out there and you do you. You don't try and win. You don't try and stop losing. You go out there and you move and you breathe the way you do. And she said some other things that were spiritually contextual to us uh, that, that kind of turned me around. And I decided, you know what? I don't care if I win. I'm not going to try and stop from losing. I'm, I'm going to go out and I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do the thing that I do, regardless of consequence. Nine fights later, I was in the final match uh, against a 270-pound Muay Thai fighter from Canada uh, who kicked me. And every time he hit me, something fell off. It was just like duct tape and bubble gum. Uh, where in between rounds, the, the doc would just shake his head. And he's like, yeah, I saw it come and lay down. And he'd try and put me back together. Uh, but it was just a, there, there was a transformative moment because in it, no matter what happened, I was centered. My breath rate was slow. My muscle tension was light. My heart rate, my blood pressure were down. I, I can feel it in this huge melon. Uh, I can feel when my blood pressure gets accelerated. And because of that, I had uh, maximal vasodilation. I had perfect access to my skills. I, I was able to see things, tachypsychia. Uh, I was able to slow down the event where for him, it seemed like I was a rabid badger because I was tiny compared to him. Uh, I, I, I was able to, to be highly efficient versus just merely effective. And I had that perfect fight. And that was, that was a career highlight for me um, because I, I was able to culminate all of my education into a personal anecdote of everything coming together at once. Anxiety management, self-protection, uh, physical skill access, uh, communication, uh, verbal and nonverbal posture. Um, and... In, in, in what I, in my field was the, the epitome of um, challenge and danger. And then I was done and then I retired. Is that 
I'm never doing that again. Getting hit in the face for a living is not fun. No. So you you say you were talking about rugby. Um, I, I have a size eight hat, which means I'm an awesome target. I, I did not need my face uh, collecting punches anymore. Scott, that's an awesome story. It really is. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, something, well, the question was, uh, what are the key experiences that have shaped your career? Um, and I just want to recite something that I heard out of uh, the previous conversation that we were having was that in light of marriage, it's better to ask questions rather than answer them. And I think that's a great realization in itself. And so along with, along with uh, anxiety management, there, there's, a, there's underneath breathing behavioral analysis, there's quite a bit of education uh, and it's improved, improved my marriage dramatically. Like I've, I've, learned, I've learned to become an observer of behavior and, and the first question that any therapist, especially the, the, you have a therapy background, the first, person, the first question that I ask is, how am I responding to what I'm experiencing? How am I reacting to this person's trauma? Because uh, in, in my federal law enforcement background, um, there is a huge percentage of PTSD that is not related to primary trauma, your, the exposure of trauma to you, but to secondary trauma, traumatic exposure, your, your experience of another person's trauma. And that could be kinesthetic, that could be emotional. Uh, I, I'm, 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 without my mitigation strategies, I'm fatigued by the end of the day of working with someone, especially if it's body work. Uh, because from, a, from an empathy standpoint, the more empathic you become, the more vulnerable that you are. Uh, just like in a sports performance standpoint, you, visualization is how you learn. Uh, you can physically express that, but it's not the physical practice that did it at all. It's the replication of that skill inside your mind. Uh, lifting a PR that you've never lifted before is, is you doing something in your brain before you've done it in real life. That's the only way the weight moves. And from, a, from an empathy standpoint, uh, if you are truly receptive to another person, you've already reproduced what is happening for them in your own mind. So not only do you have your own thing that you're dealing with and your own cascade of triggers, but it, it, the more emotionally intelligent you become, the more you're duplicating what you're observing in others, including, and most significantly, respiratory patterns. You become entrained to the traumatic breathing patterns that you experience in an environment if you don't have the, those skills. Um, my, my, my wife is also someone who has experienced anxiety, depression, and depression in her life, um, childhood on. And <laughs> my anxiety collides with her anxiety. And if we don't practice these skills, then we, it, it's, not, it's not geometric, it's exponential. So we can feed off each other and then we're not talking to each other anymore. We're talking to our anxiety. And then there's a, there's a downward spiral that, that, that it envelops relationships. And you don't realize you lose a relationship, not because of what you, not because of the two personalities involved. You lose the relationship because of your physiological reactions to the person, to, to the personality 
deficits and symptoms, uh, what, what docs will call medically unexplained physiological symptoms, MUPs, uh, and that, and that those collide with each other, especially in a therapeutic realm. You could, uh, I could, I could strap you up to my instrumentation, put you on with somebody that was in, let's say a motorcycle accident or, a, or some type of, uh, person that lost a limb. And we will see the same type of EMG activation, similar levels in your body with similar levels of muscular activation, similar levels of respiratory changes as they even re recall the event as they're describing it back to you. So that, that, that from a marriage standpoint, hallelujah, it saved, you know, probably saved my marriage a few times. Um, but uh, from a, from a professional standpoint, it's, it's changed. It softened me quite a bit because I, I now will talk to myself the same way I will talk to a client and I will talk to a client the same way with the same level of compassion. I'll talk to myself because I know I'm not meeting them. I'm first meeting their lack of sleep, then meeting their pain, then meeting their chemical dysregulation and them starting, then finally starting to meet the inner shell of who they are. longer than you wanted. No, I, I love that. And I appreciate the story behind it. I think it adequately tells the importance of, of mental practice and the aspect of controlling emotion and emotional regulation, right? Um, and just the, 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 the intimate tie that breathing has with that. Um, what, what would you say are some key signs and symptoms of, of dysfunctional breathing? Because in our industry, there tends to be a lot of uh, buzzwords and that's one of them mostly because some people talk about it, but not, I feel not adequately. Um, so what would you say being a highly recognized professional in regard to this are some key signs and symptoms of dysfunctional breathing? Okay. You know how, you know, you know how, uh, uh, how many trip wires are involved in what you're asking? So I have to be very careful. I'm a scientist, not a pathologist. And there, there's a difference there. I ask questions, I don't provide answers. So I can refer to diagnostically reliable measures. Um, my intuition exceeds uh, science, what's currently understood. But my intuition is unreliable, if that makes sense. I can, I can refine it, but it's, I can't trust it. I can't, I can't trust myself because I'm a very good liar. I'm a, a former professional athlete. We are perfect liars. We will, we will hide our wounds. We will, we will rationalize. We will do anything uh, we need to in order to accomplish a task. And knowing that I am a very good liar, uh, I, I need to double check myself, which is why I moved into the realm of science versus just uh, practice and coaching. Uh, from when screening for breathing dysfunction, there are, there are known and diagnostically reliable measures. So what you're actually asking is, um, are there baselines to, to breathing behavior? And yes, there, there are baselines and we, we can cross over into, I look at performance and pathology as poles. You can't understand pathology without understanding high performance. And you can't understand high performance without understanding what decline looks like and measure it. And then where, where, where does it, where does it, butt into 
pathology. Uh, and the, it's not, it's not polarized. It's, there are steps in between There's a subclinical decline in those parameters, which is acceptable. Um, I was not a genetically gifted athlete. Uh, I just knew how to impose temporary deficit in others. And then for, if I was squared away, I happened to win. If I, if they were squared away, I did not win. So sub subclinical decline. And then the next step is, uh, an early detection window for pathology. There, there are physiological changes that, that pre are precursors to, uh, illness and disease, uh, but they become multifactorial and you need differential diagnostics as a pathologist in order to make claims about what they are. Uh, I think right now in the media, it's very dangerous because people without that level of rigor and expertise in a specific discipline, uh, you can come to conclusions and you, th and you think they're smart. Like I'm very well educated in uh, breathing behavioral analysis and respiratory psychophysiology, but I'm not a pulmonologist and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say, okay, that's CPO, COPD. I wouldn't be able to say, okay, that's, that is uh, not asthma. That's exercise induced asthma. I can, I can provide the research and show here, here's the decline. Here's the early detection window. And then I would turn to the pulmonologist and say, okay, what do we do? Is this what it is? Uh, the corollary to that is the pulmonologist has no idea what is, what is, what is optimal breathing like? So uh, you can't say that non-pathological breathing behavior is optimal. It's not. It's just, it's the, we first have to, we have to look at, okay, here's optimal breathing. Uh, and then the only way to measure that is to screen everyone for dysfunctional breathing. And then whoever performs best in that specific discipline, what is the difference between their breathing behavior as non-dysfunctional athletes or performers and the breathing behavior of an entry and a mid-level person in that discipline who's been screened of dysfunctional behavior and, and tested negative. That's the only way to say that's optimal breathing behavior. If you are honest, like academically honest. And again, I won a lot of times in spite of my intelligence, not because of it. Like I, as an athlete, I can't, I don't trust myself. And even as a national coach, uh, I, I just got great athletes. I don't consider myself that, that a great coach because it was a national coach. I get the best. So that's not great. Coaching is something different than uh, having great athletes. Uh, so to get to your question, I hope I, I hope all those disclaimers aren't, uh, aren't uh, overabundant, but they're, they're critical for saying, okay, why, what are we screening for? And what can be used as a diagnostic tool by a non-healthcare professional? That's important. Um, because if a diagnostic tool can only be used by, um, by a medical professional, then it's not accessible. And you have to wait until the level of, you have to wait till the, the illness and the disease presents itself to such severity that you have to check in. What can you do to know what decline is while you're in that gray zone of the early detection window to, to say, okay, here's where I need to check with a healthcare professional, right? So what's diagnostically reliable for breathing can be categorized into three buckets. 
And the, the tools that, I, that I'll outline have between a 74 and an 89% diagnostic reliability. So we would say that's st statistically significant. That's reliable. It's not 100% reliable. Again, because you have excellent cheaters like me. Uh, I have a premature atrial contraction in my heart rate. So my, my HRV signal can look enormous. And if you, if you don't know how to read uh, uh, a tracing, then you could think, well, that guy has like a 250 HRV signal. No, it, it, it was a lie. That's a lie that my heart has, has created because I've trained too intensely and I have to downregulate that, that extra, that PAC. So to get back to it, there are three buckets for diagnostic, diagnostically reliable breathing, dysfunctional breathing screens. First, you have to, and most importantly, you have to check biochemistry. Then you have to check the biomechanics. And then finally, you have to check psychophysiology. And that's not just somatics. It's not just mind-body. Uh, there are, the, and I, I, I'll harp on this the most, psychophysiology triggers. Uh, we, our physiology learns patterns independent of us. So uh, whatever, whatever event that was emotionally impactful, that part of the brain is advantaged with a stronger signal than your conscious mind, the top, the neocortex. So if I experience something, I can learn to do that thing again before I realize I'm doing it. That's very important. Uh, just one last caveat on psychophysiology is uh, if, if, if I don't know any better and I look out my office door and there's this glint of this long ivory type uh, scimitar around waist height coming around the corner, there's no reason for me to think that that's a saber-toothed tiger. So my breath rate might not change. But let's say uh, 100,000 years ago, 150,000 years ago, forgive me, I'm, I don't know the, the era of a saber-tooth. Uh, but that seeing that same event might cause me to double my respiratory rate just from the glint of the hint of the shadow of that that tooth appearing because I need to off gas CO2 before I start running so that I don't fatigue early and become a snack. So there, there are triggers that are that are survivable and a, a survivable and adaptive uh, that have to happen. Unfortunately, in in our society, they've run rampant, right? So biochemistry, biomechanics, psychophysiology, three buckets of dysfunctional breathing from a biochemical standpoint, and this is why breathing techniques are problematic, they're bugbears. It, breathing techniques work for one person in one situation uh, some of the time, or maybe even most of the time, but not for another person in a different situation uh, for any of the time, called individual uh, individualized stereotypy and individualized response stereotypy. So a breathing intervention needs to always be checked against biochemistry first. So the first thing you want to do is you want to check, is there baseline within ranges? Uh, using capnography, you can get your own, any, any gym could purchase their own uh, capnogram and 
and there are different types. There are transcutaneous, there, there's entital CO2, the, there's, there's handhelds. Um, are they within ranges? And there's a specific range, um, 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Um, are, are they starting there or, or do they have a base level of anxiety or, um, well, there's a, there's an array of things that could that, that could happen that could cause them to be underneath 35 millimeter, millimeters of mercury, uh, but there are a couple other tests in there. Uh, for instance, if if you bring them to to peak exercise and they don't have greater than a, um, if they have less than a five millimeter mercury change in their CO2 production, then there's something wrong. They're, they're, sorry, there's something that calls interest for us to look deeper and have a, a true um, uh, cardiopulmonary test. Does that make sense? So there's, there's the non-healthcare professional test. These, these uh, indicators on, on gas exchange, acid-based physiology. Do we have the right um, O2 to CO2 balance? Uh, so it, that needs to start with end tidal CO2. Are they within proper ranges of breathing out the end of the tide, uh, carbon dioxide? And then the second uh, diagnostically reliable test since, since 1975 uh, with Watmore is a breath hold test. And it's not a breath hold test like I'm a free diver. It's not the breath hold test where you're uh, end inspiratory breath hold. It's an end expiratory breath hold. So at the end of exhale on a normal breath, if you shut your nose and your mouth and you you inhibit the the inhale, if you must through if you experience a muscle spasm like a contraction, an un, an involuntary contraction on that end expiratory breath pause, uh, in less than twenty five seconds, and you you must open your mouth, uh, and and inhale, then it's a call to look. There, there's an intolerance to CO two buildup from normal metabolism. So if I don't exhale, normal metabolism is building up CO2. And if my brainstem starts sniffing that and the chemoreceptors trigger and say, nope, I, I, my inspiratory drive's too high, I need to inhale. And I, uh, then, then there's something going on. And we could talk about that. That's what, I, what we're doing right now is one of the best ways to dysregulate breathing, sitting, uh, because I, especially facing cognitive challenge, and for me, cognitive stress and talking, uh, we off-gas too much CO2. We don't have the, the thoracic abdominal regulation change of the diaphragm in the proper way. So uh, because of that, in just a couple hours of three to five hours of doing this in one day, uh, my kidneys will stop producing a base, the bicarb, and I'll get out of balance then. Uh, so when I go to exercise, my bicarb is low because my kidneys dumped it off because it's trying to keep my, my blood pH even. And I go to exercise and suddenly a light workout, I'm, I go into oral breathing, I go into chest breathing, and I think, wow, man, I suck. I'm out of shape today. No, you don't get out of shape in a day. It, it takes months <laughs> to, get it, to get out of shape. What happened is a change in your blood pH. Uh, so we need to check that first, what's actually going on with them for the day. And the end tidal CO2 is the first, and breath hold test is the second for biochemistry. You want to check biochemistry first. Uh, as a side note, 
no breathing technique is useful if it doesn't, if, if, if that person's not in ranges. So if it shoves them out of ranges, 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury, then you've dysregulated with them with the, that um, breathing intervention. Uh, I, will, I will challenge, because uh, I'm a scientist, I would challenge people that teach holo, uh, holotropic breathing to show me that uh, deliberately inducing hypocapnia, hyperventilating in a dark room in order to make yourself vulnerable to, to psychotherapy uh, to the point where it's, it, it's a known thing to vomit from it because of the vasoconstriction to the soft, soft tissue. That breathing technique may make a person vulnerable to the therapist so that they might divulge things, but that sounds a bit more like torture to me, uh, like true torture, uh, than, than uh, a health modality, mental health modality should. So if the breathing technique causes a person to be out of ranges uh, significantly, then I, I challenge that it's a health modality. So biochemistry first, biomechanics next, diagnostically reliable. Uh, if the breathing frequency, if the rate, the rate of respiration is above 16 breaths per minute uh, at rest, and by at rest, I mean, let's say you're wearing a, an aura ring or a Fitbit or Garmin at night, or a Hexo skin shirt. Uh, if you're wearing that at night and your resting uh, breath rate in at its at its uh, most at its average is above 16 breaths per minute, it, it's a call to take a look and get a, a cardiopulmonary test from uh, from a respiratory therapist or a pulmonologist. Uh, a diagnostically reliable test that I don't agree with is the high-low test for biomechanics. One hand on the chest, one hand on the belly by a therapist, and there are different positions that you can put it on. Uh, for you, uh, as, as physical therapist, I trust it from, because you have an understanding of what movement is caused by what. For the person that's not trained in what the body is doing, I think there's a less granularity of vision. So imagine the first time that you saw somebody doing an MMA match and you kind of cock your head to the side and you're like this, this tangle of, of four arms and four legs and, and two heads, like how, what, what's going on? You watch it for a couple, uh, a couple months and then you start to see things appear. You start to have better granularity of vision. I think you need a base level of education on, on uh, muscle physiology in order to do the high-low test. Am I moving my top hand more than I'm moving my bottom hand? Number one, because I, I'm a good liar. I'm a good cheater as a, as a human as a, and as an athlete. There are better ways to do that. And the, the, the best way to do it is, in my, in my opinion, and I, I'm not giving product endorsements, um, but I, I don't know of any other, uh, any other product that has two respiratory inductance uh, plethysmography bands uh, so that you can cross compare, is the chest moving more than the belly band? So if my baseline breathing is using accessory breathing muscles, then there's something, there, there's something for me to look at. There's a, dis, there's a potential dysfunction in muscle physiology controlling breath regulation. Or uh, worse, potentially, is if uh, on, on, on exhale, it's tough for a dyslexic to do it backwards because we have to deliberately think how to do things the right way and invert it. 
So hold on a second. So when, when I inhale, my belly should relax in order for my diaphragm, diaphragmatic dome to drop, right? But how do I do it, do it wrong? Because I have to work on not doing it wrong. Uh, I was the kid with R&L in his shoes playing football. So if I, if I inhale and contract my belly back, contract my abs, your abdominal muscles are expiratory muscles. I'm paradoxically breathing. I'm breathing in the opposite direction from which I should. So that high-low test will also indicate whether there's paradoxical breathing going on. And it could be just somebody that's functionally messed up like me, and they're underneath a test, and you're telling them they're being tested. Uh, test anxiety. I am a master at test anxiety. Um, anxiety management for tests, I work on. But so you don't know if the test is causing the problem the, or the tester and their level of empathy or if, if there is a problem. That's why I say you want to get a pathologist involved if you see a certain indicator. So again, biochemistry, you want some capnography tests to see if they're in ranges, 35 to 45 millimeters mercury, breath hold test less than 25 seconds. From a biomechanic standpoint, you want to do a high-low test. Is the upper, is the hand on the chest moving uh, more than 50%? compared to the hand on the belly. That, and that's, that is a diagnostically reliable tool. Uh, it's, been, it's been tested. I think a better, a better tool would be to use some type of objective uh, strain gauge. And then finally, uh, your, at night, your resting breath frequency is, is greater than 16 breaths per minute. That's a call to look. The last one is on the psychophysiology side. So biomechanistry, biochemistry, biomechanics, and psychophys. On the psychophys side, right now, the only diagnostically reliable uh, tests that non-healthcare professionals can conduct are survey-based. So the, the, the Nijmegen, and it doesn't, it's not spelled how it's pronounced, which is horrible for dyslexic, N-I-J-M-E-G-E-N. The, the, the NQ, the Nijmegen questionnaire, and the self-evaluation of breathing symptoms questionnaire, uh, yeah, self-evaluate, S-E-B-Q. Uh, if on the NQ, your score is greater than or equal to 22, and on the S-E-B-Q, it's greater than or equal to 25, there's some type of dyspnea, some type of discomfort for, with breathing that is, in, that is significant enough that you want, to take, you want to get a test. You want to refer that person to a respiratory therapist or to a pulmonologist to, get, to have a look at uh, let's say one of the questions is like, do you, do you find discomfort in your breathing when you're doing, doing light exercises? Do you find that you have uh, chest restriction when you're sitting that causes you to have uh, uncomfortable uh, breathing? The, the, those are the type of survey-based questions that are asked. And even though, uh, like with the Stanford sleepiness scale, it, it's been rigorously tested and it's only 40 to 60% reliable, um, it's the only thing that you have that we had at the time. And now on the psychophys side, the only thing that we had that I can, like I can refer people that are non-healthcare professionals to are just give that NQ and SEBQ as uh, a, a new clients coming into your clinic or to your gym and have them fill it out as part of their normal work because you want to know, and that's the problem with, with psychophysiology uh, a trigger remains hidden until until 
the events erupt it. So you could have great breathing weightlifting. You could have great breathing doing interval training. You could have great breathing in concentrating, speaking, um, even with uh, volatile events when you're in an argument. And then suddenly uh, you go for a run and you have an uh, asthmatic reaction where you have throat constriction, you have bronchoconstriction, you, you, you have high, dif uh, high rate of perceived discomfort in your breath. Um, all, of, all of that happens only when you run. And it would take a, breath, a breathing behavioral analyst to ask the right series of questions to find out, okay, that person was, you know, escaped from a uh, rape attempt. And it was in that flight that they were pursued. At, the body remembers. And that, 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 that's important from a trigger standpoint. And that's a pretty significant example. It doesn't need to be that, that dramatic to have a trigger. Uh, for instance, you could, you could punch me in the face all you want. And, and that's why I have a hockey smile. Uh, but if, if you start choking me, then I have a tendency to do uh, breath holds and those are not good. So if I inhale and hold my breath and brace, when you slip your arm around my neck and start choking me, I'm going to go out faster. And the reason for that was um, my sport. I, I learned that being choked out is bad, so my midbrain starts to resist that. So let's say you put a, uh, a shoulder yoke on me when I do a, a back squat, and it be, it's too tight for me. You suddenly see me doing full Valsalva instead of modified Valsalva and doing reps. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You give the instructions, the person's not getting it. You just see them, they're bearing down on the weight. And it's not a failure in coaching. It's not a failure in, in the client's uh, receptivity. It is a trigger that, that gets pinged by a particular situation. And using those two surveys in the front end, uh, they are comprehensive enough to ask, are there certain situations where you find certain things going on? But even that, but it, again, those triggers are elusive and a person can, be, can seem totally squared away and then suddenly you put them back in a similar situation and then that trigger appears. So I, I know that was a lot longer than you wanted, but in some, uh, you, you, if you don't address all three buckets, biochemistry, biomechanics, and psychophysiology, uh, there's, there's, no way, there's no way to have a comprehensive uh, screen on whether somebody should uh, be beginning, let's say, a physical exercise regimen. Because they're, they're independent of one another. They often don't, don't correlate to each other. But think of it like somebody that has poor posture. Uh, well, actually, it's exactly like somebody that has poor posture. It's just an intrinsic musculature. Uh, but think about somebody that has poor posture and then you had have them deadlift more weight. They get stronger at having poorer posture. They get better at being worse. So if you don't first clean the slate, you know, tabula rasa, uh, if you don't first look at breath, then whatever baseline breathing that they have will either become more entrenched or will upregulate to becoming more dysfunctional or less functional. Let's say it that way. Too much? That's fantastic. No, yeah, I love the detail. And I love, so for clinicians, those three buckets, 
So for us as physical therapists, those are definitely actionable, especially the high-low, and that's something we use. Uh, For clinicians similar to us, would you suggest also supporting that with a capnograph? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, If you had nothing else, I would do the capnogram. Okay. So let's say you have an amputee, uh, and there are going to be, I, I, I work with amputees quite a bit, there are going to be postural distortions that aren't, aren't, aren't reparable or uh, some type of joint replacement, hip replacements, shoulder replacements, spinal fusions. Um, those are going to cause postural deviations, which will impair breathing. So what's the new normal for that person? The only way to know the, know the new normal, well, that was an alliteration, is to do a captographic evaluation of what their baseline is, and then do essentially a cardiopulmonary exercise test. Have them stand on a treadmill or on a bike and bring them up to around, uh, if they're cleared, 80 to 85% of their heart rate max. And if you, if you see both tests, are they, did they start in baseline? And can they recover to baseline within two minutes? Five minutes on the outside, then is, you definitely should look. If they can recover in two minutes, that person's squared away, recover to what their baseline is, because they can evacuate CO2 appropriately, excrete it. Uh, and then if there isn't a, when they're, when they're approaching that maximum, and I can you know, send you over more detail about it, because again, I'm a, a tip of the finger guy. Uh, when, you're, when you're putting them towards peak exercise, the, the rest to peak exercise change is less than five millimeters of mercury. So let's say I'm just average. I'm not. My, my baseline tends to be around 37 or 38. It should be between 38 and 40. Should. I, I still, because of my brain, I live in anxiety. So I, I'm about one or two millimeters low even though I work on this all the time. Um, and remember, if you have less CO2, that means blood hemoglobin can release less oxygen, and so you have more vasoconstriction, which you have less cerebral blood flow, and I don't think as effectively or, or, or communicate as effectively. So I have to constantly work on it. But if you bring me to peak exercise, I'm awesome, because now suddenly that normal CO2 loss is, is uh, compensated by physical exercise. People in remote work or telework situations right now are suffering what I normally suffer all the time because of the seated position, because of the, the decreased physical activity, they've, they have less CO2 to keep them regulated. And when they go back, they're going to find that they're doubly worse in their conditioning, not because of muscular deconditioning. We're at about a month, right? And it's going to take about two months for considerable atrophy. Uh, so they're really starting over. But faster than that, because renal compensation happens in about two to three days, uh, they'll be down on bicarbonate. So when they go back, they're going to be mouth breathing. They're going to be using chest muscles and shoulders to breathe. There are distortions in posture. And then what all, what all mental and emotional traps happen after that? Uh, negative automatic thoughts that come. <sighs> the desperation that happens. And then all of the self-judgment. And you, you've got to walk all that back, right? Because that that's... Those are all secondary, those are symptoms. Thoughts and emotions are symptoms when they come from gas changes. But we, we like one of my profs said, uh, your brain has many different voices, but it only has one microphone. So when that person steps up to the microphone and starts talking, uh, it sounds like you because it's in your voice, 
like, ah, I'm such a piece of crap. I can't, like, I shouldn't have. And all of the, all of the thoughts come and you've got to walk that back somehow. If you develop the trust as a therapist or coach, uh, and, and, and even, even if, even if they do communicate it, like in most cases, they don't divulge all that negative dialogue. Uh, so there, there's a lot going on and a capnogram helps you there. Uh, that's why I, I go back to it. Uh, there are great certification programs. Uh, there's a professional school of uh, behavioral health sciences that, that does a remote course. You can do like a Zoom course um, and, and get a, a licensure in, in how to do breathing behavioral analysis as a clinician or a trainer or a coach as a non-healthcare professional. And and they're not in it, they're not expensive anymore. Don't get the medical grade. You don't need that kind of. You, you, there are educational capnograms that you can get. I think that's highly valuable for clinicians because, as physical therapists, for instance, um, you know, ordering like an arterial blood gas analysis is outside of our scope. But I think a capnogram is well within our scope. Um, it's just the clinician needs to be prepared to adequately and you know, educated to assess the information and know when to collect it. So I think that's, I think that advice that you just gave is powerful. So ABGs are, you can use a captogram and get all you need out of ABGs because the end tidal CO2 is like 97% uh, reliable as a analog to arterial CO2. Alveolar CO2 represents uh, arterial CO2 as long as you do those dysfunctional breathing screens. Right, because there are some ventilation perfusion mismatches that can happen um, and they'll be pertinent to uh, physical therapy and physical exercise um, for understanding if you're doing maximal training let's say let, let's say you're not using like a high-end metabolic analyzer um, but let's just say you're using uh, a uh, a correlated vo2 max parameter not a true like a true mask is the only way to block off co2 at partial pressure and o2 partial pressure and know what the respiratory exchange ratio is but there are a lot of uh, devices now i don't want to name names uh, that correlate to um, they predict what vo2 max ought to be but we know that vo2 max is not what we think it is because uh, they're, they're, it's replete with problems, um, and the studies are pretty significant, showing that I can. I'm pulling up a slide so I don't have to rattle it off from my half a pound brain. Um, okay, so. There are, this is from 415 studies. Endurance can be improved while VO2 remains the same or worsens. Endurance can decline while VO2 remains the same or improves. VO2 max doesn't always predict high endurance and low VO2 max doesn't always predict low endurance. VO2 max readings can differ between testing modalities. So you could have a great VO2 max in running, but a terrible one in cycling. So it's not reliable across. You can't transfer it to imagine what other activities are. VO2 max initially improves in untrained individuals, but then stops improving. And VO2 max doesn't 
improve in elite athletes, even with higher intensity training. So why is VO2 max so inconsistent? Uh, and that was one of the, the deep dives for me um, and was actually my, my graduate thesis of looking at that. Um, if I measure end tidal CO2 and I take someone to um, peak exercise in that particular activity, they're going to be biomechanical, biochemical, and psychophysiological changes. Like you think of it as I, I can psych myself out because of the discomfort and dyspnea, the difficulty with breathing can trigger central fatigue. My brain will say, this is dumb. This hurts a lot. And then I have all of these branches of thoughts and emotions of I suck and I, I should be in better. Like I used to be better. And that guy's like teleporting across the mat. He's like a rabbit badge, like all of this stuff, all these self judgments aren't me. It's the, the discomfort in my breathing, which triggers midbrain to shut down motor control. Dyspnea, 40 to 60% of fatigue is due to dyspnea. Tract, known. So if, if it's not true VO2 max, if it's difficulty in breathing and that's causing fatigue, we're not looking at VO2 max. It is not true VO2 max. Next, let's say you're, you're watching my, my my capnogram, you put me in a treadmill and you know, on a bike, having put me on a metabolic analyzer that I can pound it out. Right. But you put a backpack on me. And this is one of the studies I did in force special forces group in the past, uh, put a 65 pound ruck on somebody and have them start squatting while you have a capnogram on. And then just two minutes into it, suddenly the CO2 drops off. Why would the CO2 drop off if that's such a, a awful mechanical load? It should continue to grow, go. And the only reason that CO2 would drop off when I'm looking at a capnogram is that what we call it the fall point is because I'm no longer getting my arterial blood CO2 into the little sacs in my lungs, the alveolar. So it's not excreting out. So it's stuck inside my blood. I'm breathing faster than gas exchange. <sighs> because your brainstem only knows survival. Breathing is the greatest biological imperative there is. So it only knows breathe faster. And as it approaches that, especially if it's uncomfortable, if it's co-located with that dyspnea, then I start to have a ventilation perfusion mismatch. I'm ventilating, I'm wasting gas. I'm breathing out O2 that I should be using, and I'm not breathing CO2, which I should be evacuating. So that fall point in CO2, I can use a capnogram better than a highly expensive metabolic analyzer. Because all I have to do is exercise to the point where I see there's, an, there's that, that fall point in CO2, and I know that's, that's the end of conditioning for that person. And it tends to be around 80 to 87% of their true peak. You have knuckleheads like me, who can push beyond discomfort because we're stupid. Like we shouldn't push through pain, right? Especially when it's, it's not even real gold that you win, by the way. So what does it matter? Uh, but if you push through stupidity, like for, for people that have jobs where their, their physical performance is a job enabler and that's important to our national security, that's different. As an athlete, athletes first. You protect the athlete from his own stupidity. So if, if I could go another 13% to my true max, if I can do that without discomfort, 
and then I'm going to have greater discernment. I'm going to have greater uh, skill execution. I'm going to have greater fulfillment, like self-fulfillment. I'm going to enjoy the sport more rather than quit early because I'm burned out from this nonsense. I'm not doing this anymore. So looking at breathing will and helping that person see, okay, at this point, your breath became at this rate and that's where you fatigue. So at this rate and this minute volume, and it switched from belly to, to all chest, and you had this ratio, there, there are a, a litany of parameters that we can look at. Okay, if that's true, as you're using that capnogram and teaching, taking somebody through peak exercise, if that's true, then that's your trigger. That triggers fatigue for you, that, that array of parameters. Let's work up to that and let's practice breathing drills rather than work you harder. Let's keep you, let's, let's throttle back two breaths per minute. Let's try and relax your, your pecs, which lift the chest up in order to get more volume. The pecs are designed, they're, they're secondary breathing muscles. That's their dual purpose. Uh, or spinal changes. The erectors are additional. They serve a dual function in respiration. So whatever the, you with the level of discernment you have as physical therapists put into a peak exercise situation, you know, and there's that psychophysiological tr trigger that creates a physiological change. Now let's just walk that back. Let's take them up to 84%. Can they keep their, their level? Then 1% more. And if they keep their level, 1% more. That's true athletics, in my opinion. It's 1% change, not a 10% change. And, and uh, you, we talked earlier, and you used the word efficiency. Uh, I believe efficiency comes before effectiveness. Being able to do more um, with, with greater cost to the individual means they're going to fatigue faster and suddenly, or the burnout faster. You, we should be able to, to do the same with less cost first efficiency so let's say you have a person run at this speed this distance uh, with this caloric output at this breath rate have them keep running that until they can lower the caloric output and lower, lower the breath rate and then you take them to the next step so efficiency first because otherwise it's like a hot air balloon where you keep all the sandbags on and you just freaking you turn on the the the, the fire as hard as possible. You just keep going, right? And then the ropes are starting to fray and the balloons like struggling in the environment instead of let's just cut off a few sandbags, right? Same amount of air, same, same amount of fire, but suddenly we get a lot more elevation. So a, a, a capnogram can help you look at uh, respiratory efficiency or what we call respiratory fitness careful asking questions or at least give me, <laughs> give me, give me parameters. I, I love this. I have so many other offshoot questions now from all the things you just said. I feel like I've learned so much. That was the first time I've heard a hot air balloon be referenced to sports. That was, that was amazing. That was really good. Uh, I, I stole that from one of my <laughs> instructors. I, I'm just a thief and a liar and a cheat. And you represent it well. Well, well, Scott, we definitely want to be, be mindful of your time. Uh, I think we have maybe one more question for you, if that's all right. Sure, sure. So, I'm, and this question was, was, oh, the cops are coming for me now. I'm sorry. Uh, I've, I was, nah. I, I took so many notes. My notebook is just, is just full with notes and questions, just like Danny said. Um, I, I have so much reading and, and, uh, and homework to do after this. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, 
this question was, was answered earlier, but I would like to hear your opinion if you have any more thoughts or, or wisdom for uh, the people that are listening, the people that push through stupidity that are listening, our athletes. Could, is there any, uh, anything in particular you'd like to tell them regarding how an improved breathing efficiency uh, could enhance their performance? All right. Uh, it's difficult when you're the type of athlete that competes in exercise. Because when you're an athlete that whose sport is some type of exercise, let's say Olympic lifting, uh, it, it, it's, it's co-located. So it looks like more is, is better, right? And, and it, it, it can be confusing, but exercise is actually, training is different than competing. Uh, and uh, champions from 12 sports, this is a, long, a large study, a 10-year study, champions from 12 sports spend 80, the, the best champions across 12 sports spend 80% of their time in 40 to 60% of their heart rate maximum. Light to moderate intensity, because they realize that it's about skill development, not about effort. Sure, the adaptive zone is around 70 to 85% heart rate max on the Yerkes Dotson inverted U curve. Um, that's a bungee cord zone though. You should be, you should be spending about 15% of your time pushing the edge. Most of your time on how can I do less for the same amount of output? How can I be lazy with this so that I can, I can pay less to the bank for the, the same amount of benefit. When I go over to my, my adaptive zone, and I start pushing the bungee cord zone. Most of us, most athletes spend the, the preponderance of their time on that bungee cord zone where they're going off the edge and hopefully the elasticity will bring them back. But uh, with, if you use a rubber band too much, eventually it gets to the plastic region and it, it, it adopts the, it becomes a plastic bag where it stays the new deformed length. And that's where things rupture. So 15% of your time you wanna spend uh, on true training. And by true training, that, that, that's 1% of the time. You need to be, like I, one of my coaches said, you wanna play old guy jujitsu. Slow, methodically, take away their liberation to breathe. One inch at a time. And because uh, uh, like another coach said to me, uh, eventually the bodies of your enemies will float downstream. It's whoever doesn't get injured. 1% of the time, you just keep on working, okay, and, and look at it, 1%, 1 improvement this week. And true 1%, not knucklehead 1%. Uh, and then 5% of the time is, is an event. But a lot of people are focused on PRs. Only 5% of the time are you looking at an event or a PR. That's in the red. Uh, most, if you look at... Um, recreational athletes, recreational athletes try and spend 45% of their time in PRs. It, no, no, no Olympic athlete would ever do that. Something like that. We're, it, it takes eight to 13 years to build an Olympian. And if you, a good athlete works um, very hard, a great athlete works very well. There's a difference. It's focusing on skill development. Even if that skill is, let's say a barbell jerk, Right? How do I how do I use less and how do I measure what less means? How do I use less energy in this? Uh, whatever your measurement is, it's easiest to see it in breath. 
because if my breath did not change, or my breath changed less because of that same amount of output, I know I've adapted to it. And that that's something I know without any type of, of instrumentation. So again, 80% of your time in light to moderate, 15% of your time in the training zone, 5% of your time testing. Uh, that will that will prevent you from being stupid. Uh, and you have to accept that if you believe you're a good athlete and you want to become great, you're going to become greater at, at hiding deficits and symptoms. That's what becoming great means. You're a, you're a good compensator. Uh, the body's a genius. And it will, it, if you practice anything to the exclusion of its functional opposite, you will create imbalance. It is a super compensator. Um, so, um, start by looking at your breath and measure it somehow, I, I would say. And I don't, it, uh, respiratory rate is the easiest, but it's, it's not the, it's, uh, you have to measure rate and volume against each other in order to get a true measure. And then you can't know rate and volume, uh, if they're, if they're you, or if they're a gen pop, unless you also check your, your, your expiratory gases, if you don't check your carbon dioxide levels. Thank you. All right. That's perfect. <clears throat> Thank you so much for all that, Scott. Just adding my notebook is 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 filled now with so many notes. Um, as we're as we're closing, I I, I definitely want to let you get back to doing all the important work that you're doing. So thank you so much for spending a little over an hour with us. Um, we're, we're, they, I'll speak for Alexis and Danny and I. We're so grateful for this opportunity to talk uh, to you. We've been pumped about it ever since uh, our our. Uh, our friend mentioned that this was a possibility. Uh, so I'd like to give you the chance as we close out to, to um, share anything that you can share that you'd like to share that you're working on or anything you'd like to promote to our audience uh, that you find uh, relevant. I can't talk about my job, but I, I can say that um, my, my focus right now is, and probably for the next 15 years, is, is, is going to be upon identifying and isolating breathing phenotypes. Uh, there are certain types of, of breathing changes that happen. We know that what, what breathing changes happen with anxiety, for instance. Uh, there are different breathing types, phenotypes, for different emotions. Uh, you know what the, the, a startle is like, that uh, quick increase in volume, so airflow, airflow velocity increases on a, on a time decrease on inhale, and then there's a prolonged breath hold. So let's, uh, it, it, it could be, that looks fearful, but it could be frustration, right? And then uh, how does that frustration impact than physical performance. Like how fast can I, how fast can I let that go if I'm about to do something? Like I, son of a, like I get hit by, let's say my daughter not being able to go to college because she's supposed to go, but with the lockdown, the university might like, and, and right, I get that message right before I step onto a Zoom call, not this one, but let, let's say, and I know that uh, when it comes to public speaking, that there's a prolonged time of exhale and a prolonged end expiratory pause. So when I talk, because of that, that, that frustration and that startle, I end up talking with a short gasp and I seem anxious, right? And who is this clown 
right? He can't access information. He can't speak clearly. He's giving me anxiety listening to him. So the, what is the interplay of cognition, emotion, speech, and exertion? Uh, and how does that uh, induce or delay fatigue and um, anxiety? That, that's where I've got a, a lot of work to do. Like there are a few other scientists like me, but uh, again, it, there are people with no social life like me. Uh, they, you, you, have to, you have to be comfortable with, with not having friends and you better find a patient wife. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott, again, for everything. And, and who would have thought we, we were expecting, you know, all this great breathing content that you gave us, but also marriage advice. So thank you again for that. That was that free marriage. It wasn't advice. advice. <laughs> it was reflection on my challenges. So careful. I, I, I again, my, my wife is nearsighted and, and that's the only reason it's been successful, not the anxiety management. Thank you so much. Alexis, Danny, anything else as we, we sign off? Scott, thank you for like just expanding breathing beyond, you know, the boxes that I think it's easy as clinicians to place around it. Um, and I think you, this talk has really kind of just opened my eyes to like the actual application of breathing um, for our athletes, for just humans. Um, that, that has been like kind of the best thing to me. So I, I really appreciate the work you're doing and um, just appreciate your time again for talking to us. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and again, thanks for, for what you're doing with the, your facility. It's, it, it's outposts like you that actually are the boots on the ground to, to make this work. Uh, it's so easy in science to get divorced from reality because you, get, you, you swim in numbers uh, but without practical application and practical hours, that it, it doesn't really matter. The science is arbitrary. So thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. That's awesome. Scott, we appreciate your time. Hopefully, we're, hopefully we, um, we can make things work to where we can uh, finish the second half of our discussion. That would be <laughs> amazing. I think you've given us a lot already. But you, I see, there, there's an imposed mute button. That's the way that you can make sure that you get everything accomplished. And just <laughs> mute all, and then I don't have a choice. <laughs> we'd, never, we'd never do that. Well, Scott, you have a great evening.